Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, yesterday, Chris Davenport walked over to Blister headquarters from Aspen, and we then sat down to talk about how Chris thinks about ski gear and to learn his own personal preferences. Along the way in this conversation, we discuss monoskiing, which gear he is most picky and least picky about. We talk about ski width and mount points and weight. We also talk about which particular skis he actually spent the most days on last season. And we talk about whether Shane McConkie would be into these Gear 30 conversations. Speaking of Gear 30, this episode is presented by our blister-recommended shop, Gear West, which is located in Long Lake, Minnesota. And here is a pro tip for you. It's one that we often forget. Summer is typically the best time to go have a relaxed shop experience with boot fitters, and this is certainly true at Gear West. With uninterrupted time to dial in your boots, you can ask all sorts of questions and the boot fitters at Gear West have the tools and the knowledge to assess your feet, recommend the best boots for you to try on, and to explain why they think that certain boots will work best for you. They can also recommend the best footbeds, whether custom or drop-ins, for your unique feet and ski goals or they can fine-tune the fit of your current ski boots to make you more comfortable and to help you perform better on the slopes this coming season. Plus, if you head into Gear West now, you can also take advantage of last season's deals or check out the new Alpine gear that is arriving daily. So head over to Gear West or shop online at gearwest.com. And with that, let's talk about more gear with the one and only Chris Davenport. Here we go. Well, Chris Davenport, you like literally just walked into Crested Butte and pretty much are, you know, shortly thereafter here in uh, Blister <laughs> HQ. So, you know, welcome. Thank you. That's uh, typically the type of entrance I like to make, something just <laughs> unique and different. So, yes, I did walk from Aspen to Crested Butte today, although trailhead to trailhead, not town to town, um, and had a wonderful, gorgeous hike over West Maroon Pass. The wildflowers are going off and it's great to be over here. It's one of my favorite places on earth, Crested Butte, and I'll be hiking back a different way uh, with some clients tomorrow. So uh, I wasn't going to come here without an important visit to <laughs> Blister headquarters. Hmm. Well, and here we are. <laughs> it's cool to have you here. Also kind of funny that we actually just met up in Ketchum. Uh, I'm losing track of time, but that was... A week ago. A week ago. Yeah, basically a week ago, we were up in Ketchum. I was up there doing some mountain guiding and some cycling uh, with some friends, and you were there. And now you and I have a wonderful mutual friend, yes, um, Jake Bilbro, founder of Revel Shine Wines. And we're sitting here in the headquarters having a little bit of Revel Shine because, you know, after a beautiful hike from Aspen to Crested Butte, what better way to celebrate? (laughs) Jake actually would be very, very proud right now. Yes. Because this very much goes in keeping with his like have a wonderful day out and then you get to come in with good people yeah you know you just want to experience wherever your compass takes you there you go you know that's what they say (laughs) well first of all i did want to ask you about the guiding 
because it seems like you're doing a whole lot of this. Yeah. And so, and, and kind of year roundish, is that right? That's accurate. Yes. Um, you know, as a professional athlete, skier, I've gone through all these different phases, uh, evolutions of, of my life, of my career, starting out as a little ski racer kid through college and then, you know, turning to the free skiing world and, you know, Crested Butte US Extremes was my first contest right here in 1994. I, I wanted to yeah. actually clarify that. Yeah, there's I, a lot of history there. I, I thought it was your first, but I wasn't sure. Literally yes. your first. I literally had graduated from college in December of 93 in Boulder, uh, where I had gone with Shane McConkey and we had known each other in high school as well. Um, but he had dropped out of college after our first year of ski racing. He just, you know, didn't work for him. And I, I stuck with it. But Shane, we stayed in touch and we saw each other a lot. And he called me up in probably January of 94. It was like, hey, dude, we're going to the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships in Crested Butte. You should come. My first uh, answer was, what is that? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he described it. And I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. So I drove down. I think it was my first time ever in Crested Butte and competed here. And it was like, I found my posse, you know, everyone that was there, men and women were so cool. Um, it was this emerging new genre of skiing that was the kind of skiing I wanted to do. And frankly, coming from ski racing where I had spent, I don't know, 15 years in the starting gate, I had a, I had a good mind for it. So I could be in the start gate on top of Headwall or on top of uh, Sakatumi and just be like, I am gonna totally crush this where other people might be shaking in their boots, you know? So yeah, that was my history here in Crested Butte. And, and I was on giant slalom skis as was everybody. That was the only game in town, a high performance uh, GS ski. You didn't want too much side cut, like not that there was side cut back then on slalom skis, but GS skis seemed like the way to go. So I had a uh, Dina Star was, a, was my race sponsor, G9 or and then Dina Star X9s for the next couple years. And I won the world championships in Alaska on a pair of Dina Star G9s, which I still have in the collection. You do? Oh yeah. We, we were talking a little bit uh, earlier about your collection. Yes. And every every ski that was important to me, my X Games medal skis, winning the 24 hours of Aspen, those downhill skis, you know, other competition skis, the first ever X Scream, one of the most successful skis in history was the Extreme, and I, I have the first prototype because we were involved in the design of that. I have the first Solomon AK rocket, which I designed, and we can get into this later, but I kept these things because they tell stories, yeah. you know? And it's, I'm a huge fan of history of skiing, whether it's the people or the destinations or the equipment that made a difference. And so I've held on to some of these things, much to my wife's chagrin. She'd probably be like, get that out of the garage. Like, you know, it's important to me. So which model was the Dina star? The G9. The G9. Yeah. So it was kind of like a recreational version of their like World Cup race ski. Yeah. It was kind of orange and yellow. Um, Do you remember the length? Yeah. It was a 203. Yep. Yep. And I've got all, at the time, my first sponsor really for free skiing was Obermeyer Clothing you know, out of Aspen. So I have all these great photos of, you know, doing tip crossers, wearing a headband with these G9s, just very period shots of like the early mid nineties, you know, they're, they're classic. And I have long hair too. Perfect. Not really long, but you know, just flowy. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And just thinking about skiing some of this terrain here Yeah. on a 203. I mean, the good news is like this mountain, I don't like a lot of side cut. And so at least you 
have the no or not much side cut going for you, but a 203. And I'm guessing that was what, a 67, 68 millimeter? It was, yeah, probably 67 or 68. Yeah. Yep. And you have to remember back then, you know, the, the way we skied was dictated by the equipment that we were on. Yeah much like it is now. Obviously, if you're on a 130 in the waist, 190 centimeter long ski, you can do some incredible things in steep pow, you know, that you could not do on a 203, 67 in the waist. So the word jump turn is not in many people's vocabulary anymore, but it was in ours. You know, when you were going down something steep in Crested Butte on uh, third bowl or um, slot rocks or last steep, uh, body bag, you better know how to jump turn, right? Because that's the only way to control your, your skiing. And uh, you go back and look at footage of those days. It's so funny. It just looks like a different sport. Yeah. Well, I mean, just your personal opinion, do you miss that style of skiing? Are you stoked on where things have evolved? Yeah, I'm, I don't miss it, but I'm really glad that I was uh, there for it. I w- I'm really glad that I was there for the golden age of hitting cliffs, big ones. Like that's not a thing anymore. I mean, people do it, but it's not like people aren't trying to push the boundaries of 90 feet, 120 foot. That was a thing for us. Uh, and I remember being here in 97 with Matchstick Productions going up to Irwin, snowmobiling around with Seth Morrison and Wendy Fisher, basically trying to find the biggest cliffs we could find and just sending 100 footers. And uh, that just doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen the same way. So um, while I, I ski differently nowadays and the things that I love about skiing um, have evolved, I, I still think that was an amazing era in, in, in time in our sport. And I was, like I said, happy to be a part of that. Well, this is what we're going to do in this conversation. It is actually going to be to talk about some of your own personal gear preferences. And this is something that we're actually going to start doing. I don't know if it's going to be like once a month, but I want to talk to some more professionals about their current gear choices, maybe how some of that has evolved over time. But I think this is going to be a useful thing just to help people get a number of different perspectives on, you know, what we can be doing here with gear and and just different approaches and ways to think about some of this stuff. So, and you're tricky because it's like, well, we could talk about ski gear. We could talk about bike gear. We could talk about alpinism. Or, yeah. <laughs> so like you, you kind of, it's, I guess it's all on the table. I mean, and I'll, and I'll just say to kind of clear the air. Like I'm a total gear nerd and I always have been. I love equipment. I love tinkering. I love designing. I love being in the factory and building. And so it, and that that's skis, boots, bindings, apparel, uh, anything involved in the sport, Alpine, Alpine tools. Um, I love trying to make things better. And it's been a fun part of being a professional. I can't imagine being a like a pro skier or a pro tennis player or a pro golfer or a pro surfer and not having input into the equipment that you use. That would be super weird. The only thing is that I have talked to some people that are skiing or biking at the highest levels and they actually just don't care that much about the gear itself. And sometimes I think they are actually so good, Mm -hmm. they can kind of get on whatever and make it work. And so one of the things that I have at least found to be true is that the very 
best folks in a given discipline, it doesn't necessarily mean that they completely dork out on this stuff. You're 100%. So, that's just a personal preference, something that I really yep. enjoy. You know, you might you might take someone like uh, Lindsey Vaughn or Michaela Schifrin on the race side. They're not in the factory. They're not even testing. They're, they're being handed their skis from the technician who says, this is the fastest ski for today. And that's what they do. Right. Um, same in cycling, you know, with the highest levels, uh, you know, Matthew Vanderpoel on the mountain bike world cup, or, you know, take tour de France riders. I'm not sure how much input they have, or are they just riding what bikes, you know, the team give them, but, uh, where they're almost like my job is to win the race and be, yeah. you know, be the lungs yeah. you know, and provide the power. Your job is to go figure out right what i should be doing that on and so it, I, I like i like uh the crossover yeah you know i like being involved um in all aspects of the sport like uh i had a red bull uh tv series um years ago it was called faces of dav and it's all it's like all the different hats i wear in the ski industry one of them being the designer and engineer we did a whole episode on that my involvement with developing designing building boots skis apparel um that's just it's just fun yeah. It's fun creating cool shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then you've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah. Welcome to Gear 30. So let's talk a bit about ski gear. One of the ongoing questions is this whole issue of like light gear versus heavier gear. And I just want to kind of give you the floor on this. But a question that I'm personally curious about is whether your approach to that question of weight has evolved over the years or actually stayed pretty consistent over the years? I think that uh, it, it has evolved over the years because in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you didn't care about weight because you had no options. There were, you know, there, skis were skis and... You know, what's light? Yeah, what was light? I mean, I remember getting my first pair of dedicated ski touring skis from Solomon in probably or maybe 1999 or 2000. It was very much a French ski. It was never imported into the United States. I had a Fricci binding on it. It was probably 70 in the waist. It was meant for randonnée yeah. and it was very light. Um, I, I was doing more and more mountaineering, so I was trying to start testing things that were available on the market. Um, and these skis were really interesting, but they didn't ski that well. You know, They were a foam core. It wasn't even a wood core. Um, and now of course we have very lightweight wood cores that we've, that because we've been able to figure out the material science behind lightweight wood and wood polymers and things. But, uh, um, yeah, I didn't used to think about weight. Now I do. And, and I will say flat out that there is the perfect ski for every day for every person. So you just kind of need to recognize who you are as a skier, where you're skiing, and what the conditions are. And then you're going to find you, you might have, or you might be able to rent or demo that right ski. So, I mean, of course, as a professional, I have a quiver. I'm skiing on any given season, probably 10 to 12 different pairs of skis. Um, three. That's actually a lot. Yeah. 10 to 12. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of line out my quiver yeah. for you. So, uh, Four of those would be lightweight ski touring skis. These are all from Kessley. Kessley skis, the Austrian ski maker. Um, so three or four of those would be lightweight ones. One would be a, just a pure uphilling ski, like a, a kind of a World Cup 600 gram, you know, super lightweight thing for just training. Like 
on the resort. On the resort. On the resort. Okay. Uphilling on the resort. Yep. That's just a training ski going out in the morning, hammering a 3,000 foot uphill and skiing back down. Really, really fun. Uh, and then I would have three backcountry skis, typically call it a, um, right now, like an 83, uh, no, probably a 93, 103, and 110, something like that. Um, would just, you know, set up for backcountry skiing. So that's four pairs of skis right there. Then I've got probably four pairs of skis that I'm skiing on the resort. And that would be a, like a 108, a 98, definitely an 88. And then I've got a ski pair of skinny skis cause I go out and ski with clients. So, um, like an 80, you know, but shorter that I can go out and noodle around if I'm kind of teaching someone, um, and, and I definitely use those this past season cause I was on the resort a lot cause I wasn't traveling. So that's, we're now we're to eight pairs of skis. And then I've got, you know, a, a one sixteen that I would use in Alaska. Um, probably wouldn't really ski that so much at home unless it's like a really, really deep day. And then let's see what else I've got a mono ski. So that gets us to 10. Love the mono. Um, come on. Oh no, I'm serious. Do you know, oh, yeah. I've never been on one and I'm, oh, it's I'm so scared. fun. No, Should don't be scared? scared. No, no, don't be scared. It'll take you literally two runs to kind of figure out how to do it. Cause it's totally opposite of what your, your brain is normally thinking, but you can go really, really fast with a lot of control and it's super fun. <laughs> how often are you breaking out the mono? Not that often. Okay. I'll do it a couple, couple days a season. Okay. Yeah. But that's a, that's an important part of the quiver. Um, trying to think if I've missed anything else. Um, you got two more. You've been killing this answer so far. Yeah. I had a little bit of skeptic. It's oh, a little you know, hypocritical because I'm like, you ski 12 skis a year? And yeah, then I look yeah. around and I'm like, no, I have, uh, I've got a pair of race skis, like a full on World Cup GS ski that I will take out on Aspen Mountain first thing in the morning. It is so fun. So fun. And I get, a, I get a fresh pair of those every year. I really like, I, one, I'm, I, I love tuning and mm. I, you know, I grew up tuning my own skis and I tuned my kids race skis, taught them how to be technicians. And I love taking care of my equipment. So tuning a race ski and putting a good race tune on is awesome. Um, so then one more trying to think what else I would have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said 10 to 12, we, we got 10 to 12. So I'm, I'm at 10 right now. 11. I got 11. Okay. The mono is 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty good. But the point is that I'm actually using all of those skis during the season uh, and then there's a boot component to that answer as well, which is probably five boots deep, depending on the day. Five boots. Yeah. So again, like if we go back to this match it with the skis, we're talking about the lightweight uphilling ski, you know, then I'd be on a Scarpa alien, yeah. super lightweight, kind of like a race rando race boot. You and Cody were talking about the addition of schemo racing, ski mountaineering racing to the Olympics in 2024. I have some of that equipment. So it's, it's, totally different than what we see in the room here at blister hq but it's interesting and then i would go up to the next lightweight touring boot um my scarpa f1 probably my favorite boot of my whole quiver that's kind of my everyday backcountry skiing boot if i'm going to um maybe cat ski maybe heli in alaska or do some side country without a lot of uphilling i'd go with my mistrale rs's my so a heavier four buckle free ride alpine touring boot um, which i absolutely love and i've kind of skied more and more in those um and then I've got another pair of like Mistrale XTs with like a foam liner that's kind of like a resort boot. 
And then I've actually got like a full race ski boot, Alpine boot. So that's five. If you're doing an inbounds day and let's say you're skiing with whoever you, you know, want to ski, like it's a pretty, it's a normal day, but it, like, we're going to go get after I'm it. I'm skiing with friends. You're skiing okay. with friends. Yep. What boot, are you always in the same boot then inbounds? Nope. No, totally depends on the conditions. So for instance, this past January, it was pretty dry in Colorado. Things were pretty firm. Um, it was very chalky and fun. Uh, and I actually was skiing my Alpine boots um, a lot just because of stiffness, performance. I was on a narrower ski because it was pretty firm. So I was, I was skiing 88s and 98s a lot. And then once things started snowing and getting softer, I could go to a little bit softer boot like the Mistrale RS and skied that a lot. So, you know, here in Crested Butte, we got, say, say we have a day with great conditions, um, six inches of new, it's been, we've been in a storm cycle. I'm probably going to be on that Mistrale, you know, it's so awesome, so comfortable, so high performance. And if I need to tour, I can tour. Okay. Given your race background and pedigree, Here's a question that we'll get it, I don't know, popping up in the comments section a handful of times a year. You know, someone will say, you guys at Blister, you guys are crazy. Um, 69 to 72 millimeters wide of a ski is totally fine for all mountain skiing. I personally push back on this frequently now. And then the other fun thing is we get there's like, you guys apparently don't know how to like make a ski turn or carve a ski. And I'm like, okay, I'm always just like, just come ski with us. Yeah. We're not, we're not world champion skiers, but just come ski with us yes. before you talk shit about people you've never actually skied with. Right. Yep. Anyway, what's your take on this for those folks who are like 72 or whatever, or narrower is totally fine. <laughs> you guys are insane. I think I, I can totally profile that person. Okay. They're probably over 50 years old. They probably, they may be from the East or mid or mid Atlantic or Midwest. They probably go look at pugski.com a lot. Um, those guys are friends of mine. No, 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 uh, bad vibes there at all. But, uh, there's a certain mindset that a narrow ski can do it all. And it's kind of like saying you can take your road bike on single track and expect the same result. Mm. So I think it's a very uh, short-sighted and somewhat ignorant view. Um, I'll go back to what I said earlier, Jonathan, that there's the perfect ski for every day, just like there's the perfect golf club for every shot, right? And so you can't just group these things together and say 69 to 72 millimeters in the waist is a great all mountain ski because mountains are different. Conditions are different. It might be great at a certain place on a certain day, but I certainly would push back against that way of thinking. I like to be much more open-minded, as I said, in, in finding, you know, the people that listen to your show, they should all have at least two, but more like three or four skis and, and just rotate through those based on their conditions. That's, that's the modern way of being a, being a passionate skier, having your equipment set up, having it dialed. I mean, you don't play golf with one club. Why are you going to, you going to be a good skier with one ski? Uh, you shouldn't. You don't play golf with one club. <laughs> Chris Davenport, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> you don't surf with one board. I always use the utensil analogy. I, I like oh, your, you don't play well, golf. You can, you can eat with one utensil. It's known as a spork or a nork. Yeah. It's, yeah. 
Okay. Now, have we properly answered the question about lighter gear versus heavier gear no, preferences? I'm glad you're coming back to that because I don't think we we kind of put a, a bow tie on that. Um, so, yeah, weight nowadays plays a very important role in our decisions about equipment and what we choose. Um, the higher performance skiing you're doing, the heavier the skis should be. Now, some people are going to probably scratch their heads and go, what? Listen, if you've ever picked up a pair of World Cup downhill skis, like the kind of ski people run the Hanenkam on, you would not believe how heavy they are. But they have to be heavy because those guys are going 90 miles an hour. They weigh 220 pounds and they're creating incredible G-forces. And the ski would blow apart or, or they wouldn't be able to make those turns if they were on a lightweight ski. It's impossible. Same thing is true of race cars. You know, an, a, a NASCAR or a Bentley weighs 5,000 pounds because it's going 250 miles an hour. If you're going to go down the highway in a Suzuki that weighs a thousand pounds, you're going to be all over the place. You're going to have no stability. So weight and performance are, are totally tied together uh, and stability is sort of the outcome. Now, if you're going to be going uphill and fighting gravity, then of course you want lightweight skis because, you know, our bodies are going to be carrying that weight, lifting it off the snow, hopefully efficiently, but you're going uphill. So then you get into the lightweight categories. Now, if someone's riding the chairlift at their local resort, they're not ski touring, weight is really not an important issue. It's not something that they should be, uh, when they purchase a pair of skis at a shop, they shouldn't really ask about it. it it's, I won't say it's irrelevant, but it's a lot less relevant. Um, you really wanna think about just the type of skiing that you're doing and where you're skiing, what those conditions are. Those are the most important elements when it comes to buying and, or building a quiver, or buying a ski. Yeah. So in your personal practice, am I right to think that you maybe are doing longer ski tours now than you used to, or is that not quite accurate? I wouldn't say that's necessarily accurate. I'm I've always been more of a ski mountaineer. So finding objectives and climbing and skiing mountains um, rather than going on like long tours and traverses. Um, I mean, I do some of that. And the longer the day, the lighter I typically would um, would choose. You know, here in Colorado, in the springtime, we get this great melt freeze cycle, corn cycle, we call it, springtime snow. And um, when I'm skiing that kind of snow, I'm on a narrower ski and a lighter ski because I can really go long distances. Um, so like 90 in the waist is a perfect springtime Colorado corn snow ski. But in the winter, I want to be like on a 110 because I want float. It's in spring corn, I'm not worried about float. So yeah, I'm not so much a long ski tourer as much as I like going vertical, you know, climbing and skiing down. And so then I guess what I'm trying to like <laughs> maybe pigeonhole you into, that's not the right term. Well, just here, here's an example. Like I look around the, the Blister HQ here, you probably have, I don't know, 40, 50 pairs of skis on the wall. And I, and I, I recognize most of them. I actually could care less what any of them weigh because this type of ski that you have on the wall, weight doesn't matter uh, to me. I mean, there's a few, you have a few pairs here, like the wonders and those Solomons and a few pairs with touring bindings where, you know, people are going to use those for hut trips and, and big ski tours in Canada and things. And so then weight is, a, is an issue, but the majority of these skis, man, you're going to just be charging the ski area and it won't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say given 
that some of you listening to this aren't looking at what's actually in the room. We do currently have up front here, it is primarily a bunch of skis, mostly with alpine bindings on them. These are inbound skis that we predominantly have up front. And then we got a bunch of more skis in the back. But then what's your take about like, I just personally, personally, just me, right? So before everybody gets mad, personally, I would much rather be dealing with a heavier ski inbounds, especially for this ski area, than a lighter ski. I'm not like kind of indifferent about that. You sound like you're saying for inbound skiing, you're a bit more like, eh. I'm going to go with the higher performance ski for sure. And the higher performance ski is heavier. If we were skiing together, and say we're we're the exact same ability and it's kind of like cruddy firmish conditions on on the mountain here and i'm on a all mountain ski call it 100 in the waist um and you're on a, a lightweight ski i'm going to leave you in the dust all day long you, you just don't have the stability in that performance of that ski to hang at uh, at a high level so that's weight. That's where the weight conversation comes in. Um, it's either you're talking about uphilling and backcountry skiing, or you're talking about performance. So I like high performance skiing. So I'm not afraid to have a ski that's got some two sheets of metal in it. You know, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 tetanol. That is a great feeling ski. This Kessley 99. This little bit, couple years old, right behind me. I mean, holy smokes, that thing will ski you if you don't ski it. It's a ton of performance. And when we sell that ski at retail, we have to identify the customer's ability because it will really take them for a ride and they won't like it at all. It's like putting someone behind the wheel of a Porsche GT3 that doesn't really know how to drive. They are going to crash, right? <laughs> and you get on that ski right there and you don't know what you're doing, you are going to crash and probably hurt yourself. So... <laughs> Last weight question, I swear. And I don't, and it's fine if you're like, I don't really think about it this way. Well, you already asked me how much I weigh. So we can, we won't go we there. Did, we did talk. <laughs> well, we should tell people just, yeah. So you're like 5'11". I'm 5'11". And uh, my ski weight, ideal ski weight is like the high 170s these days um, in the winter, maybe even 180 uh, if I've been lifting or something. But, you know, springtime touring season and summer cycling season, I'm more like 167 would be would be good 168 we sometimes have posed this question on blister um where are you quicker to save weight and where are you less quick to save weight so if we thought about categories of like skis boots and bindings but i'm going to give you a fourth option mm -hmm. and this would be i like this game your pack mm-hmm like, I'm, and we're trying to get at what you actually do, not not a theoretical yeah, yeah. or hypothetical, but like, if you are like, all right, we're going to go climb something steep tomorrow. And so I don't want to have a massive weight penalty. Where are you quickest to get your weight savings and where would you like to yeah. hold off? So my, I guess the thing I'm going to go to first is boots. Um, I would rather ski a heavier ski with a light boot than ski a light ski with a heavy boot because then th that heavy boot overdrives the ski and you lose a lot of performance. Whereas like with, with my Scarpa F1s that I mentioned earlier, I can, I can really ski a, maybe not, you know, a big high performance Alpine all mountain ski, but like certainly a touring ski, 
wide touring ski with that binding no pro or with that boot no problem so yeah on, on a day like that where you know say we're going to ski the grand teton in a day it's you know seven thousand eight hundred vertical or something like that it's a big day so i'm thinking about what's in my pack i'm going to try to be kind of a minimalist i'm going to think of like what's the weather what's the worst that could happen here what can i leave behind with my apparel with my food and water choices I'm certainly not going to go up and carry a bunch of water when I know I could carry a teeny little lightweight stove and melt some more water or um, get some out of a creek or something like that. Um, so yeah, food and water, I would consider apparel for sure. You know, I'm not going so far as like cutting my toothbrush in half or something like. You're not to Jimmy chinning it? <laughs> what, Jimmy chinning it? Yeah. Um, does he do that? Yeah. Yeah. No. But, or uh, has been known to, I Has been say. known to. Yeah. But I like to think that, you know, my, my skis, my bindings, my skins, my shovel, my probe are all light and, and still really functional. You know, I'm not carrying some terrible plastic shovel. I'm just carrying a proper mountaineering shovel, but it's pretty light nowadays. There's great equipment out there. Okay. So that's your answer. You focused and zeroed in. I feel like that was kind of the easy way out, but you focused in on the pack. You're not talking about Maybe this is an unfair characterization of your answer, come to think of it. You said you'd be quicker to save weight on the boot side of things. Bindings, you're probably not switching up. I have a few different touring bindings, but it, yeah, that's less. I mean, you're only talking about a matter of like 10, 20, 30 grams there. So it's not that big a deal. Here's a great example. Today, I was hiking from Aspen to Crested Butte and I wanted to go fast, um, but I needed some essentials you know, the, the things I need in my guide kit for tomorrow. Um, but I was going, I think it was 11 miles. I just brought one liter of water, but I have, I brought a filter. So I knew I could fill up if I needed to, I didn't end up doing it, but I would do that skiing. I mean, a, a liter of water is, well, let's see a gallon of water, a gallon of water is five pounds. So 3.8 liters to a gallon, you know, it's a, it's a couple pounds. So I'd rather leave that out of my, leave the water out and not worry about the ski boot or binding. Yep. Gotcha. Was this a straight hike today or was there actually some like trail running? Today? No, I was kind of just hiking. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I was, uh, I was, I was wearing trail running shoes actually. Cause it's a really nice trail. I didn't really need like hiking boots or anything, but, uh, I was just kind of motoring and, and listening to music and podcasts and, um, looking at flowers, taking pictures. Yeah. It was fun. That's terrible. You had, you listened <laughs> to Cody and me on the way over and now yeah. I have to do this. I, I, well, I've really been enjoying you and you and Cody's sort of uh, ski news roundups. They're they're fun because um, you're debating, you're talking about issues that are important out there in the world of skiing and news and um, equipment and um, and I like you know the book recommendations are fun. I actually just read the Hail Mary Project, huh. which he had recommended yeah. from his Saint Elias trip. Yeah, it was amazing huh i loved the book because it's sci-fi it's such a cool you should read it okay <laughs> so i you know it's fun and cody's one of my closest buddies he coaches my ski camp and uh you know we've been friends going back to 2006 after i finished skiing the 14ers in colorado he, he had just gotten signed on solomon young solomon athlete he was probably 19 out of Squaw Valley. And I was going out on a slideshow tour of REI destinations around the country. And Solomon sent Cody along with me, learn the ropes kind of about how do you do presentations? How do you do this and that? We had the best time. And that's where I met him. And we've been fast friends ever since. And of course, 
I was beyond thrilled when he decided to ski the 50 classic ski descents in North America, which is, uh, of course the book project that myself and Penn and Art did that we're very proud of. Yeah. So that's really very cool. exciting time. Very happy for Cody. Congratulations on your, uh, upcoming, uh, son. It sounds yeah. like yeah. and Elise are having. It's awesome. I really hope the kid is just a total math dork. <laughs> I know. And just you rebels. were saying that he's going to be a super dork. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. We'll still love him. We'll still love dork baby just a little Townsend. Less. Yeah. <laughs> what gear are you personally most picky about? Or if you don't like the word picky, we can substitute most selective about. I keep I keep coming back to boots, and I'm boots is my answer. I I really think that your ski boots are the most important piece of equipment that you can own. It's the most personalized to you and your body, uh, and I think it's it's the connection between your body and the snow um, more so than the ski because it's you feel everything through the boot. So I've always uh, I've always customized my boots, whether it's with uh, you know, heat moldable intuition liners or injected foam liners, certainly uh, custom orthotic orthotics. Um, I have a fairly, um, I guess, normal foot and, and leg alignment. I don't pronate or supinate terribly. I'm not knock-kneed or what's the opposite of knock-kneed? Uh, bow-legged. Bow-legged, thank you. Bow-legged woman and a knock-kneed man. Isn't that what they say? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I haven't ever really had terrible problems that I've needed to fix. I do, you know, a little bit of punching here and there. But for instance, like I've mentioned Scarpa, that's my ski boot sponsor. And I've been with them for a long time. For one reason or another, their boot molds just fit my foot perfectly. And I've put my foot in Sportiva. I've put my foot in Dinafit, um, Solomon, of course, and other... And th- you, you know, in that first moment of impression, whether it's the right boot for you. So people will oftentimes ask me, Hey, I'm, I got to go get new ski touring boots. Should I get a Scarpa? And of course I'm like, well, yes, but no, because you got to get the boot that fits. So try on three different brands and one of them, you're going to slip your foot in and go, Whoa, that feels great. So that first impression is super important. So yeah, my answer is the, the boots are the most important piece of equipment. And again, serious skier, you know, if you're just on the ski resort, you could probably get away with, you know, one pair of boots, but it's fun to have a couple to go back and forth and try different things. What gear would you say you are least picky about? Mm, probably least picky about my poles. Although I'm kind of picky about my poles and I have, a, you know, I never, I never ski with pole straps. Me neither. I ski strapless always. Me too. Yeah. Um, people find that strange, but I've it's, been criticized for this one as well. As soon as you do it, you'll never go back to straps. It's just, and I'm, you know, I'm oftentimes working in the mountains, whether I'm teaching or I'm guiding or I'm filming and my hands are always going in my pack or this or that and in and out of the heli or the snow, whatever. The straps are a thing of the past, in my opinion, um, except for ski racing where it's, you don't want to lose your pole. You need, you need to have that. So what am I least picky about? I guess I would say poles, you know, bindings, Alpine bindings are generally Alpine bindings. There hasn't been a lot of innovation in the Alpine binding space in a long time. I mean, I'm just looking around the room right here. Um, and most of the pure Alpine bindings that I see have been around for more than 10 years. I'm looking at some uh, shifts. I'm looking at some 
Alpinist, some other touring bindings. These are recent innovations and they're awesome. Um, so when it, you know, yeah, when it comes to Alpine bindings, it's just securing your boot to the ski and, and releasing it when it needs to. So I agree with you on that one too. And I mean, I know we still will have, I think this though is, I think this crowd is maybe there's maybe fewer of them these days or they're getting quieter because we used to hear real strong binding allegiances mm -hmm. in we're talking inbounds binding alpine bindings and one i mean we ski a number of them like all the time and and i kind of agree with you i mean i just wouldn't if there was an alpine binding that i was just like screw this binding like i don't feel safe in it or i'm constantly pre-releasing i just would never be in it ever yeah, yeah. And um, that's not my experience. So I know some people have their preferences, um, but I kind of agree with you on that one that, you know, if you look at one or two of the best, quote unquote, best binding options from a given manufacturer of Alpine bindings, I'm usually pretty cool with it. Like, yeah, I mean, let's the, go the thing with bindings is it's mechanical. So it has to, it has to uh, function a certain way and do a certain job and it has to be certified to do it that way. So bindings, Alpine bindings are kind of manufactured within a very small kind of set of parameters. And that's why we're not seeing a ton of innovation. I mean, I had uh, Shane McConkie and I used to spend hours talking about future gear innovations and laughing and coming up with crazy ideas. And, uh, I love the idea of some type of like magnetized binding system where you're just basically being held onto the top of the ski by this ultra lightweight magnet, but it has releasability based on a certain amount of fo force and weighs nothing, um, or not nothing, but very little. And Shane and I took that conversation deep and we thought it was so hilarious. And then we thought about the same thing for uphilling. Like how do we change the, um, sort of electromagnetic or, or, um, what's the word static, like electricity of the base so that you can skin up with no skin and then realign the statoelectric sort of components of the base to glide. Wouldn't that be cool? Huh. So I'm just putting that out there right now. <laughs> Shane and I came up with that one too. So, someone should get on that. <laughs> yeah. Here's a Shane related question for you. Would Shane be into the conversation that we're having right now? You know, because a lot of people think of Shane as like, no, he'd be trying to force us to do shots and, you know. Not at all. Shane wasn't a drinker. So no shots. <laughs> uh, he would be more in, he'd be into this conversation more than you and I. He was the ultimate innovator. Obviously, we know what he's come up with in the sport of skiing, where he pushed boundaries. Be, you know, he had a vision or visions about what skiing could be and where you could take designs and apply them to certain types of ski conditions. I mean, who could ever forget him uh basically screwing a pair of alpine bindings onto water skis and sliding down a peak in Bella Coola, British Columbia. That was mind blowing. And, but then the light bulbs were going off too. Like, Oh, look at that. What a wide ski with reverse side cut and reverse camber could do in snow. Hmm. So he would love this conversation. And he typically was kind of, uh, ahead of the curve, ahead of my curve. So I'd bring up something and he'd be like, Oh yeah, I kind of thought of that. And here's what, here's where I would take it. And so, yeah, he, he loved tinkering. He loved innovating. He was, uh, just kind of had that mind of like where we're going, where we are right now, but where we're going as an industry, where we're going as a sport, where we're going as just a culture. 
skiers, you know? All right, we're going further down the dork gear rabbit hole here. How sensitive are you to Mount Point? I'm very sensitive to Mount Point. Mount Point is super important to me. It, I mean, the difference of like half of a centimeter, five millimeters, it really can change the characteristics of most skis. Um, so I know what I like with my brand. Um, and I've, I've kind of played, I've played with moving it forward in condi- certain conditions, moving it back in certain conditions. I don't, I don't, so I don't really tinker with Mount Point too much because I know what I like depending on the type of ski. Um, talk to us about what you like. I have my suspicions, but tell me if I'm. Yeah. I mean, so we, we have obviously like most skis sort of factory recommendations of your boot sole center. And with Kesley, I've been very involved in the development process and testing process of all, well, most of our skis going back to our inception in 2007. And I think partly through my involvement and, and all of the testers and engineers that we've worked with, we've come up with something that we feel is, is accurate and represents the majority of our consumers. Um, and that's the center point that you see on our skis that I mount my bindings to. And I think it's dead on. Which is to say, I would characterize Kessley, see if you accept this, generally running a more traditional- 100%. Further back mount point than maybe some companies are running these days. More traditional is a very fair characterization. We, we are not building skis that are center mounted or you know that you're mounting, um, again, looking around the room here, you can see traditional mounts and you can see skis that are very, very much more forward. For a certain type of skiing and in certain type of conditions, that's fine, but not for the skiing that I do. You know, I, I don't spend a lot of time skiing backwards. <laughs> I like to ski backwards and I practice it, but on I don't do a lot of it. Huh? Do you practice it on your mono ski? Uh, no. If I'm going backwards <laughs> on my mono ski, things have gotten out of hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I think if you're, you know, if you're in the if you're in the park and you're skiing switch as much as you're skiing forward and that, and landing that way and uh, or in the backcountry and you're landing switch or whatever, then it's important to have a very different mounting position. But again, that's not really who we're building skis for. What ski? have you spent the most days on inbounds and i'll give you either last season or say the last two seasons yeah so uh with kesley i've had my own signature model for gosh almost 10 years and you know, called the fx free ride type of ski um and fx if, if you go back a couple generations um our our fx 90 fives and 96s and then fx which we now were called bmx 105s um, those were unbelievably good skis i spent a ton of time on those uh, inbounds um, more recently uh we sold the company castley a couple years ago to a czech investor the skis are now being made in the czech republic the fx series uh went through a generation of sort of we didn't nail it. It wasn't that good. So I haven't been skiing the FX as much this last two years. Um, the new ones that we have coming out this fall that are, that are shipping actually as we speak are much better. And I know I'll, I'll be on that ski, uh, that 106 quite a bit more. Um, but this, this past year, I think I was probably on the um, MX-98 and MX-88 mostly. 
because again, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't in Japan. Uh, I wasn't in the Alps. I was kind of skiing the ski area and, and we didn't have a ton of powder days. We had some, but, um, I think like for Aspen mountain and Aspen highlands, when the conditions are firmish, that 88 for me is the perfect ski. Um, and I ski it if I'm maybe working, coaching someone, teaching like a 178, if I'm free riding 188. And then same is true for that wider MX-98, which I absolutely love. I mean, it is literally a race ski in sheep's clothing. You know, it's it's a free ridey ski, but boy, you can step on the gas in that thing and it feels really good. <laughs> yep. Um, same question, but touring ski. What ski have you like actually spent the most number of days yeah. on? Yeah, so- Another cool story, and I think this is probably true of all brands. You might know more than me. Um, ski manufacturers come out every single year and they say, here's our new thing. It's the best we've ever made. It's incredible, blah, blah, blah. That's not true, right? We, as an industry, sometimes nail it and make amazing skis. And sometimes you kind of make a dud. We've certainly done that at Kessley. And I know every single other brand has as well. Um, you just, you keep trying to change things up, whether it's in materials, construction processes, you move factories, it can be, it can be a thousand different things. Um, and every once in a while you hit a home run. And this last year, our new Kessley Touring Skis, our TX collection, we hit a home run. And the TX 103, is absolutely incredible. The best touring ski I've ever been on. And I'm not saying that because of Kessley. We just somehow hit the special sauce on this thing. It's light. It it doesn't fold like some lightweight skis, meaning uh, torsionally, it's got pretty good rigidity with uh, two layers of carbon fiber, um, pre-pregnated glued carbon fiber with a nice lightweight wood core. Um, big hollow tech, which is a sort of a milled out tip on the ski that reduces the weight of the tip by 20%. So you don't, for lightweight skis, uh, especially if you're in firmer or cruddy conditions, they can kind of flap around. The tip can, you know, be really moving. And we've sort of partly solved that problem by reducing the weight in the tip. And I've seen some other brands start to do that as well. But yeah, this current TX-103 is mind-blowing. Um, that's my go-to touring ski. I have one more picky question um, that I should have asked you in, when we were doing, what are you most or least picky <laughs> about? Are you more picky about side cut or rocker profile? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. And it's a good question because it's not something that I think about very often. Um, I think my answer is going to be side cut because again, at Kessley, we're a little bit more of a traditional Alpine ski brand. So outside of our touring skis, and now we have some new models with some different rocker profiles, but we've been kind of traditional. So I haven't had to think much about rocker profile in the past. Um, we have our new ZX collection, which is a really basically uh, flat to, um, what's the word? Um, it's it's not reverse cambered, but it's it's got a, a much more significant early rise tip than we've kind of done before, and skis really well. And I was a little bit skeptical, um, but it is great. So, but side cuts really important to me because again, it it speaks to that uh, conversation around picking the right golf club. You know, side cut is important for that everyday decision. If we're going out on the hill here and it's firm, 
I'm super happy having more sidecut because I'm going to be carving around and enjoying creating really cool forces against the ski. Um, there's something about the turn of skiing that's so beautiful and so fun. If it's pow, I'm going to be less concerned about that and less concerned about sidecut and more concerned about charging the line and looking at the line and executing the line. So those are, yeah, they're different things. But I guess, yeah, I'm more picky about side cut, less about uh, rocker profile. Um, where, where, where do you lie on that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I know. It's okay not to know. I know. Mo most people wouldn't know. Thanks, Chris. You know, um, but we are down the dork hole here, so you should yeah, know. I mean, we ski so much different stuff that there are times where, I, like, I, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to ask you this is because I don't just ski my same four skis all the time or spend, say, I know you said you have 11, but you probably spend the bulk of your time on closer to, let's call it four to six. Yes. I don't get to do that, right? And so I think I'm so much in the mindset of evaluating each ski that I'm on on a given day. And sometimes it's like, you know, we, we talk about often it is the mark of a nice ski when that ski just kind of disappears and you just get to do exactly what you want to do and you are just having a great time with your friends, you know, and everything's working well yeah. and the, the ski just kind of disappears. But like when it feels like there's just too much side cut on this ski for the line that I'm trying to ski, I don't like, I don't like a lot of side cut in really steep conditions. Like the steeper things get, the straighter I prefer things to be. Yep. And there's physics behind that actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's terrifying, right? To get like oh, in steep techie stuff to get like hooked into a turn when you're not trying to go that way oh, yeah. is actually really dangerous. Yes. So, you know, but then there's other times where it's like, there's too much rocker on this, or I wish this ski had more. Yep. And it's always kind of conditions and terrain dependent. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm feeling the feedback of my ski every second that I'm skiing. Like whether I'm consciously thinking about what it feels like, or it's in the back of my mind, it's always there, that feedback. Um, and I love when I'm getting positive feedback from the ski and I get to the bottom of a run and I'm like, oh my God, that was perfect. Not just what I did, but the way the ski felt. Um, ultimately, these things are extensions of our bodies and they're the tools that we use to do this incredible sport. They should be adding to the yeah. experience, right? They should be giving us positive feedback. If they're not, something's wrong. And you have to ask, what, what is it? Is it the, sh the shape, the size? It's the wrong ski for the condition, the wrong ski for my body or my skier type or the boot, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, but when you get it right and you find the right ski yep. and you're on, it's boy, it's an incredible experience. And that's what keeps people coming back, yep. you know? And that's why in the history of evolution of skis and skiing side cut and shape beca became such a huge driver of the skiing experience. Cause all of a sudden people that were on all of us that were on long, straight, skinny skis could let, turn the ski on edge and carve. And that was amazing. Yeah, it, it's an interesting process. And and again, like ultimately at the end of the day, for most of us, this equipment is just going to enhance our enjoyment out on the mountain or in the backcountry, or it's going to detract a bit um, from the day we're having. And so, you know, 
just to be clear about that. So that's where it comes down to ultimately ski whatever the hell you want to ski. Like I truly don't care as long as, well, actually, no, just full stop. I don't care. But hopefully whatever you're I, on. I actually care. Well, why? Because when I see somebody on the mountain on the absolutely wrong ski for the day, it drives me crazy. Well, you, I'm going to say you cut me off. Oh, sorry. Because what I was going to just say is <laughs> okay. if, if you are like, I'm so stoked right now, then I don't care what you're skiing. Fair enough. Okay. A hundred percent I'm with you. And I talk about this all the time. Still, every single day that I go ski inbounds and see people in a lift line or I get out off the chair and then I see them start down a mountain, I'm like, I guarantee if you were on different equipment, you'd be having a better time right now. So that's exactly yes. why I care. Yes. But but to the person who's like, I'm super stoked right now on this, great. Like I, I'm not trying to push you into anything. Yeah, you're not judging them. No, no. But I do think that there's still, I mean, this is kind of what we've been doing now forever at Blister, but like that's our only mission to try to align you with the stuff that is actually going to work best for you to enable you to go have the best time in the mountains. That's what we're going for yeah. and you know what that ends up looking like. But I, I think that these conversations where people are going to, I mean, they get to hear our perspectives on this all the time, but I think talking with other folks and hearing where they're coming in, you know, and what they care about. And as one maybe slightly different point, Cam Smith, mm -hmm who is just a freaking beast, yes. right? A beast of an uphill athlete. Um, not that bad on the way down, just to be clear. Yeah, I mean- Getting better. Getting better. But, you know, but he, he which kind of makes some sense. I mean, Cam just owns like the Grand Traverse, basically. Um, but, you know, talking with Cam, he wants to, maybe understandably, come at this like, he's like, I think it's pretty cool what a person can do on really lightweight gear. Fair enough. Yeah, that that is cool. You know, he's put their people like Cam are pushing those boundaries right now. Yeah. Right. And we talked about schemo racing getting added to the Olympics. Yeah. We're going to continue to see investment in design and development of products because of this. And yeah, people are going to do crazy things on lightweight gear that uh, you know I wouldn't have imagined ten years ago. Um, one, one more point to yeah. that thing, because it does drive me a little crazy when I see someone either on really old equipment or just the wrong equipment. And I oftentimes will engage them and just say, hey, like, you know, those, I'm sure you like those boots, but those are like for the ski museum. They're like 20 years old. And they're like, I know, but I love these boots and they fit so good. I'm like, I know, but do you have a 20 year old cell phone? No, go get something new. It, it, there's great stuff. It'll fit you great. And, and we try to, I try to just, um, I don't know, convince them perhaps that things can get better if they would try. Same goes for skis. There's the, there's this one guy who I see skiing on Aspen Mountain on a powder day and he's on race skis. I'm like, oh, you train in GS today? He's like, no, man, it's powder day. These things are great. I'm like, you. in my mind, I'm like, you're such an idiot. You just don't get it. Like, really? He's, you know, but he's convinced. He's very just kind of narrow in his focus. And uh, I just wish I could get him to try something more that might might add more fun to his day. Since we're going down this road, my bigger thing is if that person who, the person, exact person you just mentioned, if they're like, it's a powder day and I'm stoked on these GS skis. Okay, cool. 
But what I see mostly is people, it's the people that are clearly on rental gear when I'm like, I'm certain, certain mm-hmm. that ski today is not doing you any favors. Yeah. And when they maybe aren't aware of that, yeah, that's, that's great. my biggest that's my because I'm like I guarantee you would be enjoying your day and this sport a lot more. Yeah, and I still, I mean, I've been banging this drum for a long time now, but like as an industry, our industry needs to get better at this. It is kind of a cruel joke. On a six to ten inch day, every day, certainly in America and outside of America, we've got a six to ten inch pow day, and there's still somebody on a completely flat tailed ski that's maybe 78 underfoot. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, do we just want people to hate this sport? I mean, perhaps that person is an intermediate and sticking to the groomers and not skiing powder that day. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say in a lot of cases there are people that are trying to explore more of the mountain yes and then i'm just like hey ski companies and rental shops rental shops especially what are we doing here yeah so the rental shop manager in the morning like hey team six to ten out on the hill today let's really push our our uh you know twin tipped pow skis or whatever they might be you know we'll leave the the narrow waisted flat tailed skis in the back for today because it's going to create a better skiing experience for everybody. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want. That's what we all want. Yeah, that's why we're sitting here because <laughs> skiing is awesome. It's so fun and it adds so much to our lives. And uh, I think you and I can both agree when we see somebody just doing it a little bit wrong, it just kind of digs inside of us because we want everybody to celebrate how awesome it can be. Totally, totally. Well, on that note, <laughs> I should actually let you, you got to get to dinner. Is it really? And, yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. I haven't showered yet. Time flies. <laughs> you need, you need a shower. And uh, I feel and, like we could keep going down so many different rabbit holes of gear. Um, this discussion, you know, we didn't really get into the specifics of apparel right. or boots or all of the amazing, like, uh, weather and and tracking apps that are out there these days you know we think of like our ski equipment but we're actually using all of these different tools um you know about weather and avalanche forecasting and different things i mean my when i think of my quiver of gear it extends much beyond the traditional ski gear of skis boots bindings hats gloves goggles poles you know whatever it's all these other things too um and there's all sorts of gimmicky gadgets out there now which i tend to kind of not use but there's a lot of really interesting stuff. So we might have to come back and do another show with like the most interesting, you know, new things on the market and what they do well and what they don't do well. Yeah. Um, Cause there's a lot of things that I think consumers can get confused by. Yep. Okay. That's you know? a good, all right. Well, well so. skins for instance, you know, glue versus glueless, right? Like people are like, I, they don't know, but we, we need to educate them. <laughs> Man, I really, Okay, well, you you brought it up. Do you have a quick take on glue versus glueless? Oh, yeah, glueless for sure nowadays. Absolutely, they're incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Man, I will say that wasn't true like maybe even five years ago. No, you're absolutely right. The first generation of glueless skins that I used were very, very tricky in in a lot of conditions. Mm -hmm. Good in like a very narrow window, but quickly could fall apart and really be a day wrecker. Yeah. A hundred percent. I had a few of those days for sure. But um, yeah, I'm, never mind. I wear helmets, goggles, safety stuff, airbags. Um, God, you name it. Yeah, all of it's cool, and all of it's going in a great direction. I think. 
Well, then let's just agree this won't be our last conversation. This will not be our last conversation. And it's been fun uh, getting to know you and the Blister team. And uh, yeah, let's let's keep it up. And you know what? It snowed two days ago in the Elks. So huh. what do they say? Winter is coming. <laughs> Winter is coming. <laughs> um, hey, man, this has been fun and uh, cool to do this. And uh, we'll do it again. Cheers. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay. It is time now for our What We're Celebrating This Week segment. It is several hours later in the evening on Thursday after Chris and I met. Chris headed off to dinner. I went and got a workout. And as I'm wrapping up the day, uh, I am sitting here with a little dram of whistle pig piggyback, actually. And while last week I talked about watching Fiji versus New Zealand in Olympic rugby, this week I want to raise my glass to the incredible 400 meter hurdle races and i'm talking about both the 400 men's and women's races because they were both incredible both resulted in new world records and both were incredibly inspiring races i have to confess it's the most excited i've ever been about the 400 meter hurdles and that just happened this week i think this was the olympics at its best and unlike those rugby matches I actually understood what was going on and what I was watching. So cheers to that. And I raised this dram of Whistlepig piggyback to those incredible 400 meter hurdle races. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Chris for the good conversation and for, you know, walking himself over to Blister headquarters from Aspen. I also want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.